Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to violence. Welcome to Lost in the Static. Welcome to another episode of Lost in the Static. I am Josh Hadley. With me, as always, from the future, even more future, because... We just had a time change is Glenn Criddle. Yes, I'm definitely in the future and I'm still not giving you those lottery numbers no matter how much you keep sending people around to beat me up for them. Fucking cunt. (laughs) And we have what's arguably the voice of reason on the show, Sarah Hanley. Uh, present. I totally was not asleep. Wake up. (laughs) Well, you know what won't put you to sleep? AdamandEve.com. Use the promo code STATIC, and you will get 50% off of a single item, three free DVDs, a free sex swing, and free U.S. shipping. All you have to do is use the promo code STATIC at adamandeve.com. Now, what we're going to talk about tonight is depersonalization is not the right word, so it's not the word I want to use, but how art, music, movies, television, comics, novels, etc., Stop being about their content and become about what their content can do for the corporations. Because how corporations, you, you see this constantly, especially when you deal with legalese. If you ever looked at a legal contract for a movie or a TV show or a comic book, they constantly refer to the property. The movie you make is not the movie. It's not a piece of art. It's Warner Brothers property. It's 20th Century Fox's property. And I don't mean property as in they own it, which they do, but that's all they think of it as. Like the Alien franchise at 20th Century Fox is their properties. They don't look at it as these are movies that have art in them. They are, these are our properties to be bought and sold. Glenn, would would you agree that this is the way, like I said, depersonalization is not the right word, but I can't seem to come up with a better one? How you depersonalize the art? I would call it a reduction. That's that's how I would describe it. It's taking what many people consider to be an art form and turning it into this thing, this just a product. Now that's that's really quite an offensive thing to me. I mean, obviously, not every film that comes out of Hollywood or any filmmaking community is necessarily going to be, shall we say, high art or high minded, or some of it's just going to be straight up entertainment. But it is just so frustrating when they look at something and. And just go, yeah, it's a property. And when you look at the superhero films particularly, which is kind of interesting when you look at characters like Spider-Man, who's sort of stuck in this limbo between two property rights holders, that kind of stuff, it just seems absolutely mental to me. Sarah, what do you think about this? Because, like, Spider-Man's a good example. let's, Let's look at the character of Ben Urich. Ben Urich is a character in the comic books that exists in the Daredevil comic book and in the Spider-Man comic book. There was a war years ago over which franchise he gets to be in. The Daredevil franchise, owned by Paramount at the time, and the Spider-Man franchise, owned by Sony at the time. The whole thing was, but he's integral to both characters' plot lines, but only one can have him in the movie. Is that just saying the character really doesn't matter? It's all a dick-measuring contest between Sony and Paramount? Well, it's a question of tactics at that point. Because uh, are you going to just 
be the per- first person to put it out there to go, oh, we'll apologize later? Are you going to have your people do lots of research and find out which book he came out in first and then claim that as your president? Or are you going to do the really strange thing where you had a character that was under their name in one universe and under their code name in another universe and they existed in both universes simultaneously Simultaneously, but in completely different stories at completely different ages. And in one of them, they just never mentioned at all. Oh, yeah, his dad is probably Magneto. Well, okay, then let me go to a different type of example. What about something like Howard the Duck? Now, Howard the Duck, and I know, Glenn, we're getting into some comic book history here, and I know you're not the biggest comic book guy. Howard the Duck was created by Steve Gerber. And Steve Gerber tried for years, probably decades, to get that character back from Marvel. He claimed he owned it, he created it, he hated what Marvel was doing to the character, and he kept filing lawsuit after lawsuit. Marvel literally retorted with, this character is our property. If we want to make a bad movie out of him, if we want to put his face on stickers and plush toys, we can do that. Where does... The art and the commerce end. I think Star Wars is a perfect example. Disney does not care about Star Wars story-wise. They don't care whether they make the fans happy. They care about Star Wars and the fact that we can put a Star Wars character on every single product that's ever existed, and it will sell more. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, they do look at it as very much a business opportunity. I don't necessarily would say I agree with your assessment of the story. I think they are making some effort in, I, I, in no, that see, front. I, but I, I, that's... I think the Rogue One incident is a perfect example of this, where when Gareth Edwards turned in his rough cut or his final cut of Rogue One, they said it's too dark, and I'm quoting here, it doesn't follow the direction we want the franchise to go. In other words, they want this to be a kid-friendly franchise, and how dare you try to bring art and realism into it? How dare you, Edwards? <laughs> I think there's a certain amount of problem with when you look at how much they paid for that, for one thing. The amount of money that they put down on there was, to say the least, obscene. When you put that much money down, it's going to necessarily become something that they've got to try to recoup in some way. Of course, the other side of it as well is they want it to be a franchise. Mm -hmm. When you make something a franchise, then you've got to have a direction in which it's going. And in fact, just recently I went to see the new Thor film. And um, as much as I... You mean Thor, the sitcom? Yeah, as much as I enjoyed the film... For what it was, I looked at it and went, it doesn't exist in the same world that the rest of the, no, the films it, it, did. No, it's a it straight up to... comedy now. And it's like, I, I think what Disney saw with the new Thor movie was, look how the most popular Marvel movies now are the Guardians movies. We need to make Thor mm-hmm. more like that. And you go, yeah, and it, no, the, these characters, Hulk it, and Thor, and they don't fit a fucking sitcom like that became. I mean, they were pratfalls, no, Glenn. It completely, completely went in a different direction to the whole kind of DCU sort of thing. And I was just looking at it going, my God, that is, that, that shows to some extent where franchises should have their strength. 
when you've got a franchise, you should have uh, some kind of idea about the tone and the direction of which it's going, which Marvel's been very good at. But uh, when it came to this, it was like, oh, wow. Okay, that's just a billion miles off. I'm not quite sure what's going on there. I could enjoy it as a standalone movie, but it's uh, where does it stand in, in this bloody great big franchise that they've made? And, you know, it's... Yeah, I, I think they kind of looked at that and just went, like you say, they they went, this is what's popular at the moment. Okay, screw the artistic decisions we were following, and let's go with making it kid-friendly and popular, which it is. I mean, it seems to be mind-bogglingly popular at the moment, but does that make it good? I think I think they've sacrificed a certain amount of artistic integrity, a lot of it, actually, when it came to this film. And I left the theatre with the feeling that, A, I quite enjoyed it, but B, I was very disappointed with it as well. A very strange feeling walking out of that cinema at the end of that film. I I think a a perfect example of properties versus art would be, are either of you familiar with the 1988 two-season TV series Freddy's Nightmares, A Nightmare on Elm Street, the series? Mm. Uh, Yeah, Yeah, I know of it. I didn't see too many. I think I saw uh, an episode maybe. I, I saw a commercial. I did watch Friday the 13th, the series. Friday the 13th, the series is a different story because that they actually let them do whatever they want. You know, they were trying to be good. With Freddy's Nightmares, <laughs> what the thing was is this was coming out right after Nightmare on Elm Street 4, which at, at that point was so, made so much fucking money. And they were running into script problems with Nightmare on Elm Street 5, which wouldn't come out till 1989. So they needed what... Robert Shea had a new line called a placeholder. He said on record in the Nightmare on Elm Street documentary, he did not care about this series at all. It was literally a marketing gimmick to keep Freddy in the public consciousness until they could get the next movie made. He said, as long as you came in under budget and didn't violate the FCC, you could literally do anything you want because, and I'm quoting, I don't care about this series. Isn't that a perfect example of... This is literally just a property to me. But it it is. But at least they were given some freedom. Going back to the Marvel movies, one of the differences, I'm going to bring this up again. Yes, I'm sorry. Between American comic books and comic books of other countries is in other countries, you have writers and you have the artists have full control over it throughout the entirety of the series. Here, artists and writers are just guns for hire, so they just switch them out whenever they want. If you look at the Thor movies, you'll notice that they weren't directed all by the same person. They weren't written all by the same person, and so the people who were doing the job of directing and writing had even less control over it than if you had consistent helming all throughout all three of them it's whatever disney wanted at the time that's what they got you do kind of wonder when when it comes to that sort of stuff when the two core elements of any given film or book comic book tv series when its creative heart is not considered important enough kind of shows, I think, the lack of regard that um, some of these producing companies have for what it is they're actually kicking out. When it's just like, okay, yeah, we'll get any old director and we'll throw them in onto that one. You know, they're reliable, but they're gun for hire, essentially. So they come in and they have very little say about what's going on. And that's particularly true of the extended universe type of model, where it's it can be a different director each time. And you've got some executive who's kind of making the decision above them 
So the director doesn't have much choice. The writer has to write the story that this executive wants. It has to hit certain points along the way. I mean, creatively, that's got to be in terribly emasculating to kind of be told that, yeah, you can write the story for us, but this is the story that you're going to be writing. Is, is that worse than like with Freddy's Nightmares where just make it? In a way, with the Freddy's Nightmares things, yes, they had complete creative control. They could do whatever they wanted. But at the same time, when you know no one cares what you do, isn't that kind of emasculating too? Well, no, the, the people who you're paying attention to at that point are the people that you're working with and the people who are consuming it. Because if the money people don't care unless so-and-so and so-and-so are hit, then you just don't do that and you give no fucks about them. As long as your ratings are good enough to stay on the air, you have a show that you have complete control over. That That's so much more than you know, going back to comic book writers who can find out after they've submitted their script, oh, you're not there for the next issue. What the hell are you going to do? You are now unemployed and think that you uh, have an entire year and a half arc set up for, yeah, they're probably just going to throw that away. Mm, yeah, you know, the artistic decisions... And the direction of these stories are basically being held by people who are not creative. They're looking at a product and their only interest is sustain that product as opposed to make it good. <laughs> That's a terrible way to go when you're talking about an artistic product. I, I can't see how that's particularly sustainable, but how many franchises have been ditched because they're bad and then just restarted? And sometimes for reasons other than just lack of popularity, they, they just go, all oh, right, yeah, we're going to restart again because now we want to go in, in this direction. So all that work that's gone into the previous stuff is gone well, again. Yeah, I'd say I mean, Fantastic Four, for instance, is a good example of that. Not just that. DC Comics in general, when they did their whole reboot, what was that, five years ago, six years ago? The whole thing was, man, there's 50 years of comic books. We're not getting new readers. Now, remember, they were not losing readers. They'd been steady for years. But So DC, Warner Brothers being the parent company, was not happy with the readership they had. They said, we need new readers. But new readers are scared away by 50 years of continuity and constantly referencing old stories. So let's just wipe it all out and start over. Now everybody's on the same page. Do you know how insulting? But they're not. But, but do you know how insulting that was to all the people who'd invested 25, 30 years reading about these characters? Now to find out, eh, none of that mattered. <laughs> well, yeah, but but you're forgetting that that was their surface excuse. That was the thing that they said out loud. Uh, oh, yeah, the behind the, the scenes was say. to get the rights to Superman and stop paying Siegel and Schuster about it. Yeah, because if if they were ever going to do what they actually say they're going to do, which it, I, I don't think that I've seen them do so, they always reboot the world, but they never do a clean reboot. Anything that they feel is making them enough money is stays untouched. When they did the New 52, everything was rebooted except for Batman was only slightly rebooted, so all of the Robins exist all at once. Green Lantern was only touched a little, but everybody else had to... If you were reading a storyline, you know, fuck you. Yeah, it, some you, of those storylines just ended, and then the reboot happened, and you never got any conclusion to them. Yeah, that annoys the piss out of me when they do stuff like that. <laughs> okay, even over, now, 
I don't know how I feel about this because I'm on both sides, but even over in the UK, 2000 AD, when Alan Moore was writing a serial in 2000 AD called The Ballad of Halo Jones, he was having problems with 2000 AD. He wrote the first, I think, four of six books that he was writing. It was going to be Halo Jones' entire life. It was going to be from her birth to her death that would be the final story. And he had a dispute with 2000 AD over royalties and ownership, and so he left. So the story was never finished. Mm. And you kind of go, uh, part of me says he had, you know, he should have left because of he was being screwed. And part of me goes, but man, oh man, I would have loved those last two books, you know, but 2000 AD to their credit didn't hire somebody else to finish Alan's mm. story. That does say something though. Well, we don't know what the contract was. That might have gotten them into legal trouble again. I, I'm, I'm just saying I very much could have seen them hiring Neil Gaiman to write the last two books or something like that. Well, and and maybe they will uh, they will kiss and make up, and in ten years you'll you'll get them. Well, okay, L- let's pick on DC Comics for a while. A leaked memo, I think it was 2009, maybe 2008, from Warner Brothers, again the parent company of DC came out that showed, and they kept referring to the comic books and the characters, Batman, Superman, etc., as properties. The properties. The memo basically said, we don't care about the comic books at all. These comic books are essentially, now I'm paraphrasing, this is not the way they worded it, are essentially the farm team. Because they said, we only want, we need to keep the comic books in print because without them we can't make Video games and t-shirts and action figures and movies and posters and blah, blah, blah. And it was, the comics don't matter. The comics are only where we're getting everything else where we actually make money. To them, the comic, you know, Wonder Woman, she's a property to them. She's not a character. Yeah. Yeah, that's where they get the raw art. I can't tell you how many times that I've seen a poster or I've I've seen some packaging and I go, I've seen that image. Oh, yeah, that was six months ago because that way they usually word it so they don't have to pay the artist twice. Okay. Hmm. Fun stuff, right? All right, now, this, this <laughs> might not be the same kind of level, but, okay, 20th Century Fox owns the X-Men and all related comic book properties or movie properties to the mutants and things like that. Now, in the X-Men book in the 1980s, when Bill Sienkiewicz was working for the book, the character in the book, Dazzler, is a musician, and she released an album. I think it was called Light and Fury, so it was something like that. It's been, you know, 25 years since I've read those. And he created a false album cover, you know, for the album in the comic book. So for when the new X-Men movie came out, they had a limited edition, I think it was 100 or 200 copies, of that album cover made up like an actual 80s LP. And they gave it away at Comic-Con. Bill Sienkiewicz found out about this when a fan came up and asked him to sign it. They mm. didn't give him a comp copy. They didn't pay him again for it, which they legally didn't have to, but it would have been it would have been nice if they could have given him one and said, "Hey, thanks for your effort." But I mean, to them, or would would you would you like to be at the panel where we're giving this out? Yeah, but but to them, this Dazzler album cover was we own it and we own it outright. Fuck you, fuck the artist, fuck Bill Sienkiewicz. Yeah, I mean, when it when it comes to that kind of stuff, obviously they have these things that they own and. 
as shitty as that example is on a kind of human level, on a business level, I, I kind of look at it and go, well, I can't really argue if it's their property in that respect. They could they, at least contact they, the they artist can, and go, hey, we're doing yeah, this, why not? would you yeah, like I mean, one? Yeah, Especially I, I, since he was there at the time. Yeah, I, you know? I think that's fair enough. You know, I mean, that that's fair enough. But I, I can't on anything other than a moral level say that it's particularly egregious. It's just ignorant, basically, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, when it comes to kind of like owning properties and stuff like that, and, and my main concern is more to do with how that really kind of affects the art itself. You know, I mean, when, to use the example we used earlier on, Fantastic Four, you know, when Nats was owned by Roger Corman. And it's like, okay, we've got to kick out a film and keep hold of that thing. And it, it didn't matter what they kicked out. They just shoved it out the damn, well, <laughs> shoved stuff in front of the camera. And yet, ironically and it enough, the it's the best Fantastic Four movie of them all. <laughs> Oddly enough. And it's only because they didn't tell the people that were making the damn film that that was going to be the fate I, of I think it. legally they yeah. couldn't. I think legally they couldn't tell them. Was it a horrible mistake or was it just amazing luck that they hired people on that film that really, really damn cared about it because they took it upon themselves to do a whole advertising blitz tour for all of the little comic book conventions. I think that was completely on their own dime. Well, okay, then let's, let's talk about like Gary Friedrich from Marvel. He created Ghost Rider, the original Ghost Rider in the 1970s. He, for years, has, you know, not gotten credit as creator of Ghost Rider nor royalties because we're, I'm not going to get into the whole work for hire nonsense, but legally they, they didn't have to pay him, but legally they did. It, it's kind of confusing. But anyway, he would draw Ghost Rider sketches at comic conventions. He's, you know, old guy. He hasn't been working much. And Marvel sent him, after Disney bought them, a cease and desist. You are drawing our character, our property, and you do not have a right to do this. It's like, I created this character. And they're like, it's our property. This character is our property, yeah. and you do not have a right to make sketches of it. You know, I mean, they they should have handled it better. I think it's one thing for them to assert their copyright. That's perfectly fine and, and right for them to do so, but they should have handled it better and, and perhaps given him some scope to do what he's doing. Uh, you know, they can give him tacit permission to go out and do it on a small scale for instance and that's the thing though isn't it when you, we're getting into copyright bloody arguments now but they have to kind of assert that sort of stuff to some extent just to say look this is ours watch what you're doing otherwise it can become a free-for-all and it can almost be assumed to be permission right, then, then... And... but but glenn i i'm sure that this felt even more ridiculous since he was at these conventions where mm. I'm sure that if he walked down two tables, he would find somebody doing their own artist alley drawings of Ghost Rider where it does get into that great territory of mm. I'm not drawing an exact copy of an image from your comic book, but I am drawing my interpretation of your character and selling a poster of my work. I'm sure that that was not lost upon him, that if he was not the person who created this, then they wouldn't have gone after him as hard. Okay, let's uh, let's let's go to Warner Brothers then. In 1989, when they were prepping the Batman movie, the Tim Burton Batman movie, at that point, Adam West would take the original Batmobile, which he owned at the time, the one from the 60s show, and dress up as Batman and go to Comic Cons. They didn't use copyright. They told him, 
you cannot do this anymore because we don't want that image of Batman tainting our new Batman. The franchise they were building was more important than allowing Adam West. Remember, at that point, between 1988 and 89, they wanted to scrub the 60s Batman show out of existence. They wanted everyone to forget about the Bat-2C and shark repellent and all that crap. (laughs) Which is so weird, because obviously someone from their company gave the go-ahead and took the money that before there was Batman the Animated Series on Fox, I think anyone who was alive and watching TV at that time would remember that they showed reruns of the 60s Batman on TV during the time when cartoons are usually on. That was on five friggin' days a yeah, week. Yeah, but okay, that, so that, that becomes one a, hand and then the no, other. That, that becomes a rights issue because 20th Century Fox owned the old Batman show. Warner Brothers owned the character. So Fox was putting it in syndication to try and glom off of the Batman hype from the movie where Warner Brothers was going, we got to figure out a way to get this fucking image of Batman out of pop culture. And it's ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous because anybody who knows of Batman, even if their main exposure or first exposure was to the Christopher Nolan version, for instance, will almost undoubtedly know about the 60s version. It is so ingrained in pop culture that if you've got the slightest bit of interest in superhero characters, you are going to know about that. Hell, he's in God knows how many bloody memes. How many memes have you seen of him doing the dance thing where he kind of draws his fingers across his eyes? (laughs) The Batusi. Exactly. You know, and that's a case where these people are just nuts, in my opinion. And they're trying to control the image and all that sort of stuff. And they tried to do the same kind of thing to some extent, I think Ghostbusters and all that kind of stuff. That they wanted to erase that kind of old image. Robocop. When MGM was putting out the shitty remake in 2014, Mm -hmm. you could not find anything not MGM controlled about Robocop on YouTube. They scrubbed everything. Anyone that had a TV spot, a trailer, a review, a video game playthrough, all of that got taken down on DMCA grounds because they wanted, if somebody looks for RoboCop, all they find is what MGM puts up there. Yeah, they're quite known, not just MGM, but a lot of the big entertainment companies are known for trying to manipulate the search results and all that kind of stuff. That's that's not anything new. And that's it's, some corporate douchebaggery uh, of just a ridiculous level. Yeah. That, that two weeks must have sucked. <laughs> but, I mean, yeah, when it comes to the RoboCop thing, you say, again, that's not a film that most people who were going to be aware of what RoboCop is, or even if, they, like I say, they were exposed only really to the modern version, the first thing they're going to find out about from anybody who knows anything about films is, yeah, the original was amazing. Yeah, because everybody knew it was a remake. That was never a secret. So how they thought that was going to play out well, it's like, we've got this product. Now we must get rid of the history that doesn't align with this one at the moment. That's so crap. I mean, apart from the damage that can do to pop culture history, potentially, I don't think they could actually pull it off. But, I mean, if they had their way, well, can you imagine what our history would look like in in those respects? 
Well, look at uh, they have a lot more control over things like video games where you have to get to a server even for some of them. So if they just shut everything down, it all goes down. But with the RoboCop thing, I don't know. Is it kind of weird or fitting or ironic that they were like, no, don't look at all this spinoff stuff that nobody thinks of anymore. And then they just became one. So you just added that to the list of what is it? Four different series and the mini series that came out of Canada and you're like, oh yeah, and there's also the crappy remake and you can debate which had any merit to well, them. Okay, then, no, mm. this one's more just corporate cheapskatedness, but like Warner Brothers again. Warner Brothers had a thing in the late, early 2000s more than the late 90s. Where, like, Babylon 5 is coming out on DVD, and, you know, there were other TV shows and whatnot, where they would get all the old writers from the 90s and the 80s back together and do a documentary on it, and they wouldn't even send them copies of the DVDs. Harlan Ellison said all of the extras he made for Warner Brothers on Babylon 5, he had to go out and buy the DVDs at Best Buy, because Warner Brothers was too cheap to even send the fucking participants copies. <laughs> and it's like, really, it, Warner Brothers? That... Are you that fucking broke? I gave archival footage to a low-budget documentary on Morton Doughty Jr. They sent me a fucking DVD. It just because the company is large doesn't mean that uh, they're going to act like they should. I mean, sometimes even more so. And that that's why you have to put just the most ridiculous things into contracts. And sometimes you have to stipulate, yes, you're giving me 10 copies of this. Otherwise, in six months when they're not even listening to you, they might be the kind of dickish assholes that are like, well, you can buy it. We did pay you. I, I mean, okay, it even comes down to like when I worked for Hustler. Okay, Hustler paid me a stupid, ridiculous amount. And I mean in a good way. I couldn't believe... Okay, the four pages I wrote in my first issue of For Hustler, I was paid nearly $700 for four pages of content, which is asinine in a good way. They didn't even send me a copy of the magazine, but I kind of went, you know what? They paid me such a stupidly ridiculous amount. I can go buy a freaking copy. <laughs> I think it's the least that you can do, you know. It's pennies to these companies when you do that sort of stuff. Now, who, who doesn't want a copy of their work when it comes out? It's like with frankly Green Bay, you know, we get copies sent out to us. That's always nice to get through the post once I mean, a month. To me, I can just mm. go pick one up because I'm in the area. To you, that you don't have access otherwise. Don't know what what that would be called. It's not customer service because they're not customers. Is it is it just you know Courtesy. having some respect for your relationship with your creative talent? Are we going back to just calling people talent because we're hoping that maybe the people who hire them will realize that that's why they hired I them? Just, I just wrote a piece for the new issue of Rumor, the December issue. I got it in the mail the other day. We got a, an email to everyone was like, hey, make sure we have all of your addresses up to date so we can send you out your contributor copies. That's how you should handle that. Yeah, absolutely. It's a consideration. It's just a nice um, bit of consideration and appreciation. Because like I say, it's pennies at the end of the day. It doesn't cost much to do that. It's cost of the postage plus the production cost of whatever it is. You know, it's not like you're sending out a brand new car to someone. 
just because no. they because they designed it. No, yeah. and 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 you could even put that under cost of business. I, I'm sure that Josh, let's say you went on a book tour and you had articles out in Rumorg, and you're like, hey, I'm going on this tour. You know, would you like me to have a couple of copies of that while I'm there, so that you're also they also see my work there? Are they the kind of people who are like, yeah, we'll just send you a little bundle of those because that's the kind of thing that you do when you're not an idiot. You know, when when you see that if you keep the people who are contributing to you happy, they will do things like go out of their way to tell people that you're a business that not only makes things that people like, but are not dicks. Well, I mean, hell, when, when, before I worked for Hustler, when I was first in the I want to write for you process of talking to the various editors, the editor asked me how often I read Hustler, and I said, you know, due to cost, price went up, I haven't read it in a year or two. All of a sudden, four, three, four days later, this giant box shows up of like the last three years of Hustler, and he's like, get acclimated to our current writing style. And just this <laughs> huge box of like three years of Hustler issues show up at my house. Uh, that, that, that's respect. That must have been a busy afternoon. <laughs> Man, my hand was so cramped. <laughs> I mean, from reading, from turning pages. Yes, yes. You, you, you had so much cream for you know, your, your fingers. They, they got very dry. From turning pages. But okay. Yeah, the flapping of the pages must have been deafening. But, uh, let's go back to Warner Brothers again and steer this back. So with like Warner Brothers, now they're putting out, you know, they put out the Godzilla movie a few years ago, and then now they did Kong Skull Island, and they're getting ready for Godzilla King of Monsters, and then after that, it's King Kong versus Godzilla. Do you know why it took so long for this to happen? We're not counting the Toho version from the 70s, because that's a totally different situation. It's because the rights holders, Legendary, who had the rights to King Kong at the time, and the rights holders to Godzilla both said, well, we want creative control and by that they don't mean we want to make sure our character is handled properly in the story it's the people who owned king kong said king kong needs to be the winner people who owned godzilla said no no no, godzilla is going to be the winner the same thing happened with freddy versus jason until new line owned both characters by the time the movie happened for 10 years they'd been trying to make this but new line who owned freddy and paramount who owned jason said no freddy's gonna win no jason's gonna win it's juvenile, isn't it? In a way, yeah. yeah. Just think if they actually went through with making Freddy versus Jason versus Ash, I'm sure that would have been very high level discussions there. They actually did that in the comics, though. I, I don't know. If, I don't know if the same level of discussions happened, but there was a comic with that. <laughs> yeah, that was such an awful bloody film as well because it felt so okay well and that's the other thing i wanted to talk about what about when they don't care and i'm yes about continuity like the alien franchise is a perfect example of ridley scott just fucking the continuity up the ass dry because well this is where i want to go with it yeah but it doesn't fit who cares Look at, like, Freddy Mm -hmm. vs. Jason. Friday the 13th and all those movies take place in New Jersey. All of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies take place in Ohio. Now Crystal Lake and Springwater neighboring towns because fuck you. <laughs> they, they just send their kids really far away for camp. You know, they they don't want any chance that they'll come back. I'm pretty home. sure Ohio and New Jersey are not a afternoon car ride away. They may they, be. Depends you don't on how know. fast your car is, I guess. But, but <laughs> I mean, but, yeah. But I mean. Uh, they don't, they didn't really give much of a crap about them though, did they? And, and, and that's the same with, in my opinion, Halloween, Alien Towards the End, most of these franchises. 
as they go along, they they stop caring because you get the first one, which is usually pretty damn good. Second one, which is more often than not pretty strong, sometimes better. And then from that point on, it's like, well, how can we squeeze some more money out of it? And Friday the 13th in particular, when it ends up going Jason Takes Manhattan, Canada. it's like... Jason takes a back alley <laughs> in Canada. It, it's it's utterly kind of like... It just shows you how vacuous they are with this stuff. So the story doesn't matter. It, it just becomes this image, this thing that people recognize that they just want to repackage and shove it out the door and hope to hell that every one of those... Dumb ass teenagers swallows it. That's so, as far as they care. So, so Glenn, when is the point where you take your evil horror icon and you make a cutesy girl statue out of it? I would say Freddy Krueger is the perfect example of that. Go back to 1988 with Freddy's Nightmares. In 1988, you had the Freddy's Nightmares TV series. You had two Freddy Krueger Nightmare on Elm Street PC games. You had a Nightmare on Elm Street NES game. You had Nightmare on Elm Street Freddy Krueger dolls, Mad Balls. You had two different music videos, one with the Vinnie Vincent Invasion and one with the fucking Fat Boys. The Freddy Krueger rap were <laughs> Freddy raps. He had his own 900 line. He had his own record album. And you just go, wait a minute, he's literally just a marketing tool at this point. It's not, it's like, yeah. do you realize this is a child murderer implied to be a child molester that's a fucking pop culture icon now in 1988? Well, that's the thing. They turned him from being a villain and a monster into being a hero. And I think it was like the third one that they started really doing that, you know, and, and this character became something which wasn't horrific. It was something that people could root for. And you sort of go, how does that happen? He's a child molester. You know, Ugh. how do you get this character go from there to a point where you could see that character appear on TV in an advert at tea time? Oh, it, it's incredibly easy. You just make them the most likable character by making all the other characters not. You, 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 just, awful, you yeah. just make fodder. <laughs> oh, I would say even worse for just cynical, this is our property, are the finals. Friday the 13th Part 4, the final chapter. Nightmare on Elm Street Part 6, mm -hmm. the final, or no, sorry, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 6, Freddy's Dead. You have Halloween had a final episode, or final movie. Oh, and it came back. Oh, and then there was another final. Oh, and then another final. And then you've got like Halloween H2O, which says, oh yeah, I mean, three doesn't count anyway, but, you know, four, five, and six, those don't count. And then you just kind of, what the, I think the final is the ultimate cynical marketing ploy. Like, Friday the 13th did it first. Friday the 13th Part 4 was supposed to be the final Friday the 13th. Mm -hmm. That was the point, the final chapter. Mm -hmm. And then when it made more money than the previous three movies combined, they're like, no, we really have to make another one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but they did a similar thing with Alien, though, didn't they? I mean, Alien 3 ended up with Ripley's death, and then what did they do? They made the fourth one, and they insisted on having Ripley come back in it, and they engineered the entire story to do that. Because the, you know, it, the, the it, 20th Century Fox executives with that were weird, because they said that fans need Ripley. That if fans will not tune into an alien movie that does not star Ripley. And it's like, but the fans are fucking sick of Ripley. But it's just stretching credibility, isn't it? I mean, not that you can say that Alien is a particularly credible series, yeah, particularly. 
but he was always grounded, you know, to a certain extent. And then turning that person into this kind of superhero within a franchise that shouldn't have a superhero, if you like, you know, because I mean, how many times can you drag the same character back to put him through the same old shit and, and have it stay interesting? I mean, Alien 3, for all its faults, was one of those things that it should have ended there for that character. And if it wanted to go forward, then they'd go forward with a different story. Well, how how small-minded are they of this storyline? How scared are you that you can't let go of the initial audience character? Because that's what she was. I mean, I'm not saying that she wasn't a good character. She was. Yeah, she was fun. She kicked ass. I think that it really does show that she was a stronger character from not initially being a female and character. And not being they the star, because remember, they sold the first movie that Tom Skerritt was the main character. And then when he gets bumped off mm-hmm. 25 minutes into the film, it really gives the whole, shit, anybody can die. Yeah, so they should have remembered that. They should have remembered, you have an entire damn universe so if you're going to have a movie called Alien, Aliens, you know, Alien to the 59th degree, then you know what? You can develop into that. I thought that the the game that they came out with not too recently, but it was kind of recently, where they followed her daughter was interesting and it had a good mood to it. And also is continuity and, smashing because it doesn't fucking fit. <laughs> yes, but is it any worse than the movies they just came out with? <laughs> well, there you go. Um, I, I would say with the game, that was a little bit of a cop-out for me. I would have gone away from that. It, it had nothing to do with the rest of what was going on, really, and that was kind of shoehorned in. But that's the thing. They look at it in terms of when you have these iconic film franchises that you must carry something over. And it's, I think it's what, which one was it? A New Beginning, Friday the 13th, A New Beginning. Which I actually think is a decent film in and of itself. I, I, I mean, I hate the film, but I like, I, I respect it for trying to go somewhere different. And it was one of those where the fans just went, no. I mean, Halloween it, three I, tried it, quite and fans right. revolted. Exactly. Yeah, because they'd set it up as a bloody franchise at that point because they'd gone with the same idea and they'd gone with the same idea again. And then by the third time, you, yeah, you're going to misstep your audience to some extent. Yeah, um, I, I heard the same thing happen with Narcos where they followed the same person for two seasons and then the third they went with a, a separate person and everyone's all confused. I, I don't know if that's affecting them in the ratings, but that's the same story over again. If you're going to have something that switches out every time, you have to have it soon enough because people get comfortable too quickly. Okay, then. Mm, I mean, it, it's, it's, does that say something about the audience, though? I mean, does that, It says um, something about the way the corporations view the audience. Yeah, but they sometimes prove them to be right, don't they? And that's the thing. I mean, would you say that the audience needs to be better? And, and if so, how do we make them better? To a degree, because like you have something like Heroes, where Heroes Season 1 was supposed to be completely closed off. This is one season. Next season, all new characters. And then Season 1 ended up with a bunch of cliffhangers that they immediately brought up again with the old characters in Season 2. And you went, hey. So then they dropped them, started with all the new characters, and people went, these are terrible characters. Go back to the Season 1 characters, please. <laughs> it's like all your new characters are terrible. Yeah, I mean, to some extent, what we're seeing here, really, in my estimation, is there's a certain lack of willingness to experiment. And, you know, I mean, there are 
there are times when people do experiment with a series or a franchise like with Halloween 3 where it doesn't stick for whatever reason. And, you know, but I don't think that should stop that kind of attempt to do something new and to do something different and to be brave in how you sort of go ahead with these Except kind of things. Usually you don't, you can't afford to do that on a corporate level unless you got nothing left to lose. Like let's go back and look at the 1987 TV season. ABC is in, is in fourth place. They're losing to the just launched Fox network, which lost a billion dollars its first year. And ABC is behind them in the ratings. So ABC had nothing to lose. What came out of it? Max Hedrum and Moonlighting. Two shows that would have never been greenlit if ABC was the number one network. Never would have been. I I mean, because remember, Glenn, you were talking about Mm Spider-Man. Spider-Man happened because that series was on its last legs. It was a series where they just had fun little adventures. So, I mean, it helps. It will always help that Stanley was related to the person who ran the damn company. So anytime it's like, oh, he started when he was a teenager. Yeah, he had an in. But at the same time, you mm-hmm. have Daredevil. So- Daredevil was faltering in the early 80s to the point where, I mean, Swamp Thing as well, when Alan Moore and Stephen Bissett and John Tolbin took over. Both those books were on the verge of being canceled. Their circulation was in the toilet. So both Marvel and DC for Daredevil and Swamp Thing respectively said, we don't care what you do. All of a sudden, these books by Frank Miller on Daredevil and Alan Moore, Stephen Bissett, and John Tolbin on Swamp Thing become critical fucking darlings. They start winning literary awards, which at that time had never been done for comic books before. And it was because no one cared what they did. You do what you need to do. (laughs) Holy crap, without handcuffs on... I can make really good shit. Yeah. In some regards, I, I kind of feel some sympathy with the corporation side of it in terms of they have this thing and they have to play it safe because there's so much money involved. But it doesn't take away from the fact that the kind of situation that they create, apart from anything else is what imprisoned them. I would say that, to some degree, us, the audience, not necessarily us talking right now, mm-hmm. but as a general audience, need to be maybe educated to or be willing to accept much more daring attempts to kind of keep things interesting, change things up. Because we get so set in our ways, to some extent, with uh, our expectations of an established franchise and that kind of thing that it can be very difficult to accept the differences. And that is actually something that the Alien, at least the the first four, did at least kind of try to do something interesting with. Each film has its own identity. I think that you you might have uh, struck upon something. If you are comfortable, you're not innovating. Businesses feel at their best when they're comfortable, so only when they are on the brink of extinction... Do they feel any need to throw it all out? Yeah, Which is why I always put out that I appreciate lower-budget films more because when you don't have $150 million to fall back on, it forces you to be creative instead of going, hey, we'll just CG that in. Mm-hmm. But I, I want to. Yeah, and that's the thing, isn't it? I think with the with that kind of level, sometimes it's necessity that is the mother of invention when it comes to these these things. Certainly, with the kind of films that you and I watched, Josh, with the 
low budget independent sixties, seventies, and eighties kind of films. Those films had to work around not having any money, not having great sets, not having great actors and all that kind of stuff, and having to improvise everything that happens in front of the camera to some extent. Those things kind of paid off, but they did, they had a lot less to lose in some respects than the big studios do when they sink so much money into each of these films when you're talking a hundred million for a film. That's a huge gamble when they do those things. So they're trying to mitigate so much. And I think, you know, part of the solution, and I think it's something that Hollywood's definitely going to have to start thinking about, particularly, I think, with the kind of crisis that is going through at the moment and then people are starting to get sick of Hollywood, that they need to start thinking smaller. And one of the things is they're going so big, everything's got to be bigger, everything's got to be bigger. Look at the blockbusters, the situation with blockbusters that we have. I, I remember, that, uh, isn't it quaint to think, Glenn, to go back to the mid-1995 like 1995 on Demolition Man when 50 million bucks, the most expensive movie ever made? Isn't that kind of quaint now? Yeah. But I mean, even back in that time, there was there was a lot less blockbusters. Now it's like every other every, every month there's a blockbuster. <laughs> it's like there's so many of these things. We have seasons of blockbusters, and they're just setting themselves up on the edge of a knife. If if they put out and and I know this is just being facetious, instead of one hundred million dollar movie, you put out ten ten million dollar movies. Then not only would more people be able to put their things on screen, then each of them wouldn't have as much of a just choke on you if mm. they didn't you have a do much well. Ratio it, it, to for have of those ten, five of them becoming huge hits, you're gonna make more money mm. than one Justice League. Yeah, I think Disney's overstepped the mark actually at the moment with the new Star Wars film. Have you seen the news on what they're they're demanding of the cinemas? Oh yeah, there's cinemas that are refusing to show Last Jedi because basically Disney Disney's created a stranglehold, not just on that, but like Netflix has you know the the Marvel series those are going away. Disney is saying that we want everything, we own it all, it's ours. Fuck you. Yeah, top to and- bottom. And the thing is, at the moment, they they basically turned around to all the cinemas and said, right, okay, this is the deal. You have our film, and these are the conditions that you have it under. And the conditions are uh, It's like 60% of the ticket, plus they've got to show it on their biggest screen exclusively for four weeks. And if they miss any screenings or anything like that, including if there's no audience there, they've still got to screen Mm -hmm. the film. And if uh, if they fail on any of these various well, that, um, little checkpoints, it goes up to yeah, it's an extra five or ten percent on top of, of of the ticket price. It's like Do wow. Do you know how happy I am to and, see some theaters going? I'm not even carrying Last Jedi then. Yeah. I'm surprised they're not asking for concession. That too, but I, I, I <laughs> and it's ridiculous. I want one more thing to go this, out on though. What about when a corporation only wants someone's name and that's it? Are either of you familiar with the, I think it's 1978, might be 79, really shitty sci-fi TV series, The Star Lost? No. No. That's definitely in your territory, Josh. Well, (laughs) Harlan Ellison technically created that series. Not that you'd know it from the credits. He found out that after he signed the contracts and he started doing work on this show, They shot down everything and basically sidelined him, and then he quickly realized they only want his name. They want to put Harlan Ellison's The Star Lost on there and then do their own Lost in Space knockoff. He very quickly (laughs) found 
that they only wanted his name. So mm. he took his name off the show and had it created by Cordwainer Bird, his pseudonym. <laughs> and he said they were so incensed, they tried to sue him over them not being able to use his name over them cutting him out of his project. They should have been up front. But that's some corporate douchebaggery right there, huh? Yeah, I mean, it's not unusual for a director, a famous director's name to be used on a, shall we say, a presents credit. Uh, Clive Barker <laughs> presents Hellraiser 3, despite the fact that he <laughs> didn't have one frame of input into it. Oh, God, I mean, can you imagine? I mean, that's that's a real violation Oh, Clive Barker estimation. says he still gets blamed. He'll go to a book signing, and people will talk to him about Hellraiser 3 and how bad it is, and he's like, how many times do I have to say I had nothing to do with it, despite my name being above the fucking title? But what, would, what about when they do it voluntarily, like Wes Creek? Yeah, he kind of hoard himself or, out uh, after a while. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's, that's just as bad in some respects. Because, I mean, I don't know how much creative input he had on any of those kind of uh, projects. The West Craven Presents, from what I've read, is he didn't even see a frame of them until they showed him (laughs) the final cuts. And then he said, yeah, I'll put my name on this. Well, at that (laughs) point, they already have it made. Well, I mean, take a look at National Lampoon. By the 1990s, they were literally, literally selling their name to anyone who wanted to put... National Lampoon's Dorm Days, National Lampoon's yeah. Transylvania. They had nothing to do with that. They literally, now in America, it might, National Lampoon, but overseas in Europe, National Lampoon still has some cachet, some cash in their, in their name. They were literally selling their name to whoever wanted it. it. It's kind of the Trump approach to filmmaking, isn't it? Just take your name and slap it on a building. But then, yeah, doesn't and, that... and you don't even do that. You just have someone pay you but for that. But then, doesn't that diminish the quality <laughs> of what you have to sell when it's only on garbage? I I don't know. Trump vodka, Trump steaks. I'm Trump thinking of National Lampoon. I, I think that they they. They all kill people, but you know. <laughs> I'm thinking of National Lampoon, because then it makes it harder to sell your name later. Like right now, I can't yep. remember who owns National Lampoon, but they just got bought a couple of years ago. They're trying to reclaim what National Lampoon used to be, because the previous owners sold it so willy-nilly. They're trying to get their name off of future releases of these movies that paid them, to the point where they're saying, we'll give you your money back, but you can't call it National Lampoon anymore. <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah, yeah. It, it's whoring out your identity, and if you, when you do that, you might get the first couple of times might be fine and well, but you, the longer you do it, the higher the risk of you're going to damage your own brand, and that's something you can't necessarily get back from. Yeah, yeah, because you you might be able to do it. I mean, uh, you look at how many times Marvel went bankrupt. That that's a fun history there. How many different companies have owned Marvel? So, you might be able to clean up your image by just completely selling yourself body and soul to a larger company that likes to clamp down and keep control over everything. I'd say even more but, than that. Look at the Resident Evil movies. Not the ones that are out there, the one we didn't see from George Romero. The company that bought the rights to make Resident Evil movies literally had no idea what it was. It was popular, and they could buy it. And then all of a sudden when they saw it, they went, we bought what? 
<laughs> oh, you, you mean like when the Spider-Man was bought as a right to make a movie, and they thought that it was a big Spider-Man. Ah, oh, canon. Thank you. That's the one I was thinking. Yeah, of yeah. That, that's when canon had it. They, they, they thought, according to Ted Newsom, it was like the Wolfman. He would turn into a spider. And then when, when it was explained to them, they were like, "Why do we buy this then?" <laughs> uh, I, I figured they thought it was a nice Jewish boy, and his name just happened to be Speederman. Speederman. Uh, okay. On that note, where can we find? Since Hanley is Jewish, Sarah Hanley. Uh, you can find me over here in Los Angeles. Uh, I, I'm, I'm really easy to pick out. I'm, I'm the blonde one here. Are, are, but, are you uh, the blonde have white a- girl that's in LA? I mean, there, there's not a, there's only a couple of them. Oh yeah, I, I mean we, uh, we all know each other, so you know, definitely. And ask she'll have pumpkin spice, and she'll be wearing a basic clothing. Yes, uh, it's yoga pants right now. It's yoga pants season and pumpkin spice. That's all. I'd never be able to pull that off. I hope not. <laughs> but I'm also on 1201beyond.com. I have a t-shirt there. So, you know, it's cool. You want to be cool. Uh, not saying that one goes it, it, on the it, other. No, no, it, it is a cool t-shirt. It's a very sketchy design, and I, I mean that in a good way. You know, it's specifically supposed to look like a sketch of Samara from The Ring coming out of the TV and holding hands with with Carol Ann from Poltergeist, with a Lost in the Static above it. Yeah, I kind of like that show a bit. You know, Lost in the Static. Fucking hacks. But <laughs> w- w- where can we find Glenn? Who, you know what? I'm going to say it. I think you could pull off yoga pants. <laughs> <laughs> Only if there's no threat of um, um, harassment uh, <laughs> suit or anything like that. Uh, but you... you when, when I'm not being um, threatened with that kind of thing, you, you can find me at uh, cynicalcelluloid.com and at YouTube as LampyMan101. And you can find me at 1201beyond.com. Remember, there, there's new T-shirts up there. Angelique St. Pierre has got a new T-shirt design. You can get a Civic TV T-shirt from Videodrome over on 1201beyond.com. And you can contact me at 1201beyond at gmail.com. Guys, try to be a cut above. Keep one foot in the gutter, one fist in the gold. Have a good night. Lost in the Static is a 1201 Beyond production. Find it and other great content at 1201beyond.com.